0: Welcome to Wanja City or Wanja City. My name is Wanja and you're knowing my city. City because a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Welcome to the second part of our four-part series, Tracking Wisdom. In this episode, we will meet Lady Justice, we listen to a professor's justice heir and we ask the question, where is the justice? It's all about the justice in this episode. Let me remind you that you are now on board One Justity Tours where our slogan is the One of it all. Because here we have more than audacity, we are One We begin this episode by looking at the Proverbs and we have titled this, The Lady Justice and the Good Man. Now you see, much like wisdom, justice has long been personified as female. From the Egyptian times, to the Greek, to the Roman, to the Renaissance age, To date, the image used to represent justice is a lady, typically holding a sword in one hand and a pair of balancing scales in the other. Representations of justice recognize order through fairness and a concern for the poor and needy. You see, civilizations have throughout the years recognized women as wise counselors and so have embodied justice in the female form because they appreciate a woman's strength and grace as a carrier of the moral spirit of the law. Raw justice is is masculine, it's legalistic, it's all about power and judgment. It can be very harsh. Enter feminine care, enter compassion, enter justice, with mercy, enter equity. So why Lady Justice? Because she's both strong enough to uphold the law and gracious enough to administer mercy. Because true justice is judgment tempered by mercy, which brings about order and freedom for all not merely enforcing rules that favor the able and oppress the weak that's not justice the proverbs have quite a bit to say about justice and they use real life examples they also use the word righteous a lot because righteousness and justice well they're twins yes they're like two sides of the same coin righteousness and justice therefore is a running theme in the proverbs actually in the whole entire word of god because Righteousness and justice are the foundations of the Lord's throne, so it's not surprising that it would carry here as well. Let's look quickly at some things we have much to discover in very limited time. And in this section particularly, we'll consider chapters 10 to 15 of Proverbs. Come along. In chapter 10, we find comparisons of the righteous against the wicked and and their resultant fruit. Overall, the righteous they have life, they speak life and wisdom, and the expectation is joy. It is clear from these verses that the righteous represent men of integrity who heed correction and fear the Lord. They are wise. The other side is represented by those who ignore correction. They take crooked paths and do not fear the Lord. What are called fools. The saying in this chapter are the so. They're so sweet, they're short and sweet. I mean, I dare not mutilate them. So, have a read for your own benefit. The only query I have here is and it comes in verse 1 why is the wise man the father's and the foolish one the mother's? I mean, why? It just doesn't seem right to me. Let's move to chapter 11 as you think about that, which similarly spells out the distinction between the righteous and the wicked once more. I dare not distort the lovely way the sayings are presented, and I invite you to have a read. You'll find such sayings as, with humility comes wisdom, a generous man will prosper. Isn't that just short and sweet? I will point out that I find some qualities of a righteous, or otherwise called good man. Some words used to describe him or her, because we use man here to mean both. Are humility, integrity, trustworthy, kind hearted, understanding, blameless, generous, does not hold grain. Yes, it explicitly states so. And of course, goodwill. And they also have rewards for this behavior, which include you get guidance, there's deliverance for such, there's rescue, you have respect, there are benefits, there's freedom, and there's thriving. Also noteworthy is that even the city. Rejoices when the righteous prosper. In chapter 12, we continue with the good man versus the wicked man comparisons. We see that the good man obtains favor from and delights the Lord. He's caring even to his animals. How, how do you treat your animals? It's a good sign of who you are. What I really see is how grounded the righteous are. A man cannot be established through wickedness, but the righteous cannot be uprooted. It says the good man here is rooted and so his house stands firm there's also the mention of among other things diligent hands ruling so which means fantasy time is over get to work <coughs> discover the other things very different for them for yourselves I mean they're just too good for me to ruin trying to expound chapter 13 here also has things portraying the differences between the righteous and the upright the wise versus the foolish the good versus the bad I mean you get the thing the thing continues, and so do the qualities as we have already seen. I'll just pick one verse that shows the choices you make today impact generations to come. Because it says in verse 22 that a good man or a good person leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Hmm. You see, the preceding verse, that's 21, notes that prosperity is the reward of the righteous. So if I connect this to, it appears to imply that the good man's prosperity is a legacy for his grandchildren, you know, children's children. Think about it. Do you know there are some rewards you may be reaping today because of your forefathers? Like a respectable family name, perhaps due to generosity or a certain wisdom that's associated with your family. It's beyond money. When you talk about prosperity here, it's money, yes, but it's beyond that. It's sometimes something intangible, like respect. What you call is to realize that the choices you make today impact future generations. So it's not just how you've been impacted; it's how you are, you are impacting the generations to come by the choices you make today. And the simple message is just be righteous, leave a legacy. And on that note let's move to chapter 14 which begins by telling us that a wise woman builds her house but with her own hands the foolish one tears hers down you may have heard this my question is how does she do this i won't go into the other verses one by one i mean i just can't they are all again so sweet but from my reading of the things in this chapter i've summarized it this way it starts with the fear of the lord which is the only way to walk uprightly giving thought to one's steps. We're actually told a prudent man gives thought to his steps. Then those thoughts give birth to good plans, which are brought to fruition by hard work. And then, in the end, we end up with a house that is a refuge for one's children. All the elements of uprightness are there for building a secure fortress, and so I imagine the the wise woman's house. There's the right focus, which is the Lord, which gives birth to prudent thoughts because you keep careful, thought to your ways then you get good plans and you must put in the work that's how a wise woman builds her house according to this verse and according to my understanding anyway ponder that as we dive into chapter 15. if i were to title this chapter i'd call it faces and hearts there's a lot about the tongue the lips the heart you see the tongues and the lips of the wise are compared to those of fools with the Wise seem to be spreading knowledge and bringing healing. The wicked are very busy crushing people's spirits. And speaking of spirits, we see the connection between a happy heart and a cheerful face. Actually, it doesn't matter what comes first. In verse 13, I think the heart comes first, and then in verse 30, we see the face comes first. Have you ever noticed like we can be sad and then you just decide to smile or start laughing, and soon enough, you even feel lighter? Or you can be happy inside and when you're happy in, inside let me tell you it shows on your face even if you don't know others can see it so it doesn't really matter what comes first they affect each other and speaking of the heart wise hearts in these verses are seen to seek knowledge and weigh their answers you know don't just be saying stuff think about it what is in your heart will come out and this is important as it determines which prayers god will hear god actually despises the prayers of the wicked like if you're posturing in prayer if you're coming with really nice words but your heart is really rotten that does not please him and you know he has the prerogative not to answer and he doesn't we're told in this verses that the good and the wicked have different hearts reflected on their faces we will see and god sees them all trust me there's nowhere you can run because we are told that the eyes of the lord are everywhere And on that note, this is a good place to pause and examine the state of our own hearts. Is my heart righteous and therefore wise? Am I wicked and foolish? And so, am I for justice or against it? Because God sees it all, there is no use lying to myself. Let's move on to the second portion of this episode. And we focus on Ecclesiastes. And here, we see a just desire. Now, you may remember the teacher from the last episode, the one we are calling the professor of life. Remember him? He of the meaningless, meaningless, chasing after the wind refrain. Yeah, that one, yes. We are here to find out what realistic wisdom he has for us today. I'm excited. (laughs) We will consider chapters 3 to 7 of Ecclesiastes in this portion, which I've titled A Just Desire. From chapter 3, it starts us off well with there's a time and a season for everything in heaven and he lists them from birth to death, from wartime to peacetime and just everything in between. He says, Professor Daz, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. God, ha- God has also laid eternity in men's hearts, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In what tense is this man speaking? These are my thoughts. Is this future past present tense? Because it's finished, it seems complete from victory. When he talks about God has laid eternity in men's hearts, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's complete from victory. The point again is that there's nothing new. This is where I would insert Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end God, eternity. You see, according to the teacher, he tells us what is, has already been, and what will be, has been before. Because God will call back the past to account this is some deep thinking now because our finite minds cannot understand eternity professor suggests that the only thing to do is to be happy and do good while we live he repeats what he said in the previous episode and chapter eat and drink find satisfaction in your toil as it is the gift of god we also told that there's a time for judgment for both the righteous and the wicked and for every deed done This thought comes about because Professor has observed how wickedness sits in the place of justice. So he has a sense of justice. He wants wickedness to get its due. Continuing what seems to be his life philosophy, the teacher urges us to enjoy your work because we don't know what happens after death. He even gives an illustration of men and animals being the same, as the same fate awaits them from dust to dust. That, according to the teacher, is why God tests men so that they can know they're like animals. <laughs> so do you see why with this kind of reasoning, he falls onto his his mantra, you know, his chant, that refrain we've now known is everything is meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. It's almost like I can't deal with this. It's so much. Less. It's just meaningless. In chapter 4, we see oppression. Because Professor looks and sees the tears of the oppressed. How they have no comfortable, I mean comfortable, they have no comfort and power is on the side of their oppressors. The teacher is so moved by this injustice that he declares the dead and the unborn are happier than the living because they do not have to see the evil under the sun. As if to point out this evil, he uses envy to demonstrate that it is man's envy of his neighbor that pushes him to meaningless labor and toil. It's all a miserable business, he says. But before you imagine he's advocating for laziness, he points out that a fool ruins himself by not working. He chastises greed in the same breath. I mean, don't be lazy. Even if you're motivated, don't be motivated by envy, but don't be greedy. You get what he's saying? In the same breath he's saying, better is a handful with peace than two with toil. It's also a sign that he appreciates work. So he's not saying be lazy. He's just pointing out that we are motivated to work by envy, but he's also saying, "Don't be greedy." He appreciates work, and he says that two have a better return for their work than one because you know they can pick each other up. You know, like a partnership. Hmm, very good business sense from the teacher here. As he concludes this uh, chapter four, we see he does not disappoint with the usual meaningless a chasing after the wind when he talks about succession. However, the teacher is showing some advancement because compared to before, we note that he says better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer takes warning. So he does warn us to heed warning. In chapters 5 to 6, I've lumped this together because these two chapters, they just flow like that. Listen, speak less, listen more. When you go to talk to God, don't offer the sacrifice of fools, which is talking without thinking. Let your words be few. Fulfill your vows. Stand stand in awe of God. This is very good advice. It's also applicable to human interaction, if you ask me. If we could only learn how to listen better. Then the teacher's sense of justice rears it said again. Now he's concerned for the oppressed poor whose justice and rights are denied. He says the love of money and wealth is insatiable. It's meaningless. He offers a consolation in the form of sweet sleep for the laborer, because you know whether the laborer eats little or much, he just still sleeps, tired as he is from his labors. Then in contrast, there's the riches of a rich man which permit him no sleep. So you see consolation there. Additionally, no one carries wealth out of this world. As he came, so he departs. Naked. Again, the professor ponders the purpose of all the toiling on earth, and yet he states that it is good to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in one's labor. He says if you have wealth and possessions, enjoy enjoy them as it's a gift from God. Professor says the enjoyment of these things occupy man's time, so he seldom reflects on the days of his life. However, in the very next statement, which is where chapter 6 begins, he says that it is a meaningless, grievous evil that God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but does not enable him to enjoy them and that a stranger enjoys them. There are so many levels with Prof. I don't know. Is he saying that the rich man is too busy enjoying his riches to think about the future? Or is he saying that the rich man is unable to enjoy his wealth because he's too busy worrying about his successor? Are both scenarios like simultaneously accurate? <laughs> Let's continue because in chapter 6, he's still talking about the futility of a long prosperous life life that does not involve enjoyment of your prosperity now and end in a proper burial that a stillborn is better because they are just shrouded in darkness according to him he argues both are going to the same place the meaningless chasing after the wind doesn't end here with him because now he picks on the meaninglessness of roving appetite and of the proper manners of a wise man over the fool he points out that there's nothing new again it's all existed before He ends this chapter where he began, in chapter 5, by asking, What profit is it to speak too much with little meaning?" He finishes by admitting that he doesn't know what good it is for man in life if he passes through like a shadow or of his end after life under the sun. Okay, this is what it looks like to me. That every time the teacher is disturbed by some injustice in life, when he sees it's really unfair, the oppression, He's like, I don't know, it's just one fear, I don't know, so what do I do? I eat, I drink, but even that is meaningless. And I'm beginning to change my mind and see, I actually see him from a pitiable position because he's just so disturbed by the injustice in life, it doesn't make sense, it's not balancing. Let's just eat and drink if you have that. It's all meaningless. And on that note, we go to the last chapter in this section, which is chapter 7. And we see that the chapter begins with a list of things that are better than others. Most of them are depressing. Well, this is Prof. He starts with the day of death over the day of birth, the house of mourning over the house of feasting, sorrow over laughter. In fact, he says the laughter of fools is like the crackling of thorns under the pot. Wow, he really has something against laughter, doesn't he? Then Prof points out that a good name is better than perfume. Heed a wise man's rebuke than listen to the song of fools. I mean, this man clearly has a bone to pick with fools. He doesn't like fools professor has more examples of foolishness because he says extortion and bribery corrupt the wise to become fools anger resides in the fool's heart so be patient and foolish questions such as why were the old days better than these?" he doesn't have time for he's outrightly championing wisdom now as in he's gone from it's better he's now just like okay let's have wisdom because he he says its benefits are, are for those who see the sun the living he even compares wisdom to money saying wisdom has an advantage advantage because it preserves the life of its possessor despite both of them being a shelter you know money is a shelter as wisdom is a shelter the teacher considers what he's seen in his what he calls meaningless life there's the righteous man perishing in his righteousness there's the wicked man living long in his wickedness he says the man who fears god will avoid all extremes so don't be over righteous why destroy yourself don't be over wicked and a fool why die before your time What I see is that the professor associates foolishness with wickedness. And so I will say that, and so here he says that it leads to premature death. But earlier he'd said he'd seen a wicked man live long in his wickedness. So then this would be the exception rather than the rule. The other exception is that the righteous perish in their righteousness. The teacher says there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. That's a quote. He does say though that he's found one upright man among a thousand and not one upright woman among them all. remember me saying this man was hurt. some woman out there had this man. Regarding wisdom, the teacher declares that wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than 10 rulers in a city he even asks who can discover wisdom whatever wisdom may be it is far off and most profound. However profound it may be and far off that did not stop this man <clears throat> from seeking wisdom and the scheme of things. To understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I mean, yes, only a professor would say stuff like that. How he says such things with a straight face is astounding. At the end of the chapter, which draws a close to this section of the whole episode, Professor has rather harsh words for what he calls the woman who is a snare. He finds her more bitter than death. His description of this woman and the foolish young man reminds me of Remember last episode's characters in Proverbs 7? <laughs> the advice is similar. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. You'll also remember that Prophet has already connected wickedness to foolishness. So it's not a stretch to say that the ensnared man lacks wisdom, while the wise and righteous man, God, will help escape the temptation. This is what professors found, that God has made man kind upright, but men just went in search of their many schemes. Therefore, if men and women would just do what the teacher is saying, God has made us, which is upright, that would leave no space for the injustice that so irks him. Instead, people just out here scheming, which is out do. Concerning unfairness, Professor had seen of a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and that of one upright man among a thousand. That one upright man, I find Job's case very instructive. So we will just jump in here with that thought in mind. In Job, where is the justice? That is the question. You may recall that in the last episode, I mentioned that what I liked about Job is how authentically he responds to the tragedy that befalls him. This is an upright man who has just been handed some very unjust real-life circumstances, and we get to see his story through his feelings and a rollercoaster of emotions. So we'll dive right now through his speech. And you remember the three friends, you know, the ones who came and sat with him? Yes, we'll breeze through chapter 3 to 31. We'll breeze through quickly, quickly to appreciate the full import of the interchange. And we start with Job breaking the silence in chapter 3, where he curses the day of his birth. Talk about real pain. Because in chapter 3, verse 25, Job says that what he feared came to be in the form of his losses. And so we see his deep-rooted fear now out in the open. He says he has no peace, only turmoil. Then the first friend, who's called Eliphaz, speaks. Friend number one, Eliphaz. Okay, we will also refer to him as E. E, in the first of these speeches, there's like a few. E, as in E, not he. Okay, never mind. Is in short telling Job that trouble does not come to the upright and so Job should appeal to God because God is correcting him. What I found is that he uses very good poetic sounding words. Actually, the book, the whole book is very poetic. You should read it. They all do. They speak very well. I encourage you to experience it for yourself. But with his words, it seems to me that there's somewhat theology. Now, me, I'm not theologian. What school of thought is this though? Explain. That bad stuff only happens to bad people. Hmm. Mm-mm. Wrong. That just sounds bad. In chapter six to seven, Job responds. His is raw. It's real. It's an emotional response. I like his voice. He's not afraid of saying what he really feels. The questions he asks. Hey, let me just summarize what he he says in verse 11 does a good job. Because he says, therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Yes, can't shut his brain down. Friend number two, called Builder, He speaks. We will also be calling him B at some point. So B advances the argument that Job has sinned, hence the punishment. And so his advice to Job is to get right with God. B even suggests that Job's children died because they sinned against God when he says in verse 4 that God gave them over to the penalty of their sins. Let me pause here because I have some questions. Where did we see or hear that? In the heavenly court, do you remember the children's righteousness or wickedness coming up? How does B come to this conclusion? Based on what? You know, I think in matters we don't understand, the less it, the better. That felt like a cruel thing to say to your friend who just lost all 10 of his children in Manvel's group just cruel, and, and on that note, I move on to Job's response in nine, where he responds to Bill that statement that God does not reject a blameless man. Saying it, he knows it's true. His question to him is, how can a mortal man be righteous before God? Then he goes on to make a case for God's profound wisdom and vast power. Now, although Job is maintaining his blamelessness, he admits that he cannot confront God in court because God is not a man like me that I may answer him. Job says. Job wishes that there was a mediator to arbitrate between God and him so that he could speak without fear. Because as it stood then, he just could not. You know what this does? It makes me very grateful for Christ. Because we are told in Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Hey, thank you, Jesus. In chapter 10, Job is frustrated and he says, I will complain inside his soul since he cannot do it outside. And he does, complaining of how he's sick of life and wants God to explain why. But note, even in the middle of the rant, Job still admits that it is God who gave him life and watches over him. I mean this guy. Zophar, friend number three, also called Z, has a similar line of thought as the other two friends. He urges Job to devote himself to God to put away the sin in his hand and evil in his tent for redemption. Of course, Job comes back in chapters 12 to 14, replying to Z, that Zophar. He asks him, now, who does not know all these things? I mean, I just love his wit. <laughs> who does not know all these things? He's referring to all that Job, Z has said. Job says, yeah, I'm aware of God's wisdom and power, all that. What I am lamenting is that I have become a laughingstock to my friends, God-fearing as I was. That's chapter 12. Chapter 13, he asserts his knowledge to his friends and says, What do you know? What you know I know? He also says, Would it turn out well if God examined you? That's a very good question if you ask me. In chapter 14, Job now asks God. He's like, Damn it, you people. Let me just ask God. Why is life here so short and full of trouble? Big question in this whole chapter is on eternal life. Read it. What we have that Job didn't. Is a slightly better revelation of resurrection, thanks to Jesus. And what I really like about Job's answers is how he answers. Oh, let me give you one of his classic responses. It's in Job 13:5. The NIV version says, "If you'd be altogether silent, if only you'd be altogether silent, for you that would be wisdom." Let me leave that one just like that. This ends the first round of the back and forth between Job on one side and his friends on the other. They go at it for another two rounds. Let's stick it out and see what comes of it. Chapter 15, E now in his second speech, accuses Job of being unwise and seeing him in his speech. He then uh, says suffering torment is a consequence of wickedness. Hmm. Job responds and he points out that his friends you know they are miserable comforters and they agree. He says that if they were in his place, he would also make fine speeches. The difference would be that he would also encourage and speak comforting relief. These people, yeah, they they are supposed to be comforting him. It's only been seven days there. Job then addresses God for bringing devastation to his household. He acknowledges, though, that he has a witness, an advocate, an intercessor, a friend in heaven, pleading his case with God. In chapter 17, he just feels hopeless. That's the import of the chapter to me. And in chapter 18, Bildad, friend number two, B, talks. Here, he once again directly accuses Job of being an evil man. Least job's torments, including it eats away parts of his skin. He has no offspring or descendants. Oh, come on, is that what you say to your friend who is sitting on the ground? On the His body is full of sores, itching away with a broken piece of pottery. The friend who very recently lost all his 10 children to death, and that is in addition to essentially damning the children for their sins, as you claimed in the first speech. I mean, build that is cruel. Excuse me if I don't like him. I don't. And so I move on to chapter 19, where Job replies, again, wondering how long the friends will torment and crush him with their words. He also laments God's injustice, saying he's alienated from his brothers, acquaintances, friends, guests, servants, even his wife. They're all ridic- ridiculing him. So he asks for pity from his friends. I just find this so sad. Like, everyone is against me, even servants, who used to be my servant. And then you are who's supposed to be my friend. You're not helping. But I love this verse, and there's a whole song maybe songs it says yet job still trusts; in the end he will see god because he says i know that my redeemer lives and in the end yes chapter 20 this is zophar's second and actually final speech this one is not much of a talker if you compare him to e and b and z talks but this time is talking of god allowing the wicked all man of calamities and he goes to list a few is he now guessing the same job did to receive such punishment even forget all that. What's really funny to me is that Z says he only replies inspired by his understanding because he fears a rebuke that dishonors him. Uh, okay, so pride is his motivation to respond to clear his name. Help me understand. Job jumps in in chapter 21. He says the only consolation he wants from these friends at this point is just answer me this because your whole argument is. Job is wicked, so God has punished me. Why Why do the wicked live long and prosper? Yeah, maybe I also want to know if that's the argument, that you're wicked, God has punished you. So why do the wicked live long and prosper? That was round two, by the way. Just one more to go before we shut this verbal bout down. We're almost done. Chapter 22, E. this is in his third and final speech. Here he tells Job, that his wickedness is great and that is why God rebukes him. He accuses Job of such evils as stripping men of their clothing, withholding water and food to the hungry and sending widows away empty-handed. And then Eliphaz suggests to Job that he needs to submit to God for prosperity to come to him. First, first of all, where does he get this facts of Job's wickedness? There is no evidence of them. He even thinks he is very helpful but his mind. His mindset can be reduced to this, in my opinion. Righteousness equals prosperity. Okay, bye. Okay, Job answers, and he continues with this bitter complaint against God's heavy hand on him. He's terrified by God. In the next chapter, 24, he actually says he wonders why the Almighty does not just set times for judgment, seeing that the needy are crushed while the wicked prosper. But he admits he knows it's a fleeting moment of exaltation. God's eyes are on their ways, and soon enough, the mighty are brought low and cut off. After that, uh, Bildad strikes again. That's how I can best say it. this, is chapter 25, when Bildad's third and final speech enters in, and he does not disappoint. Mm, actually, he does. Whilst he contrasts God's dominion to man, which is all well and good, he signs out with a how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm? End quote. There, right there, he uses words that seem like a jab to job to Joe, who is covered in sores, scrapping itself with a broken piece of pottery. The shade with this one is real. He just gives me friendly vibes. You don't get it, friends. It is okay to say I don't know. Sometimes we don't always know. Not while we're on this side of life. Speak the truth, yes, but do it in love and by no means pass off one experience as a principle for all. You don't always know and neither do I, I admit it. Maybe silence in some cases is best, as Job advises. I mean, even the teacher just told us in Ecclesiastes, he agrees. The more the words, the less the meaning and how does that profit anyone? Let's get back to Job, who for the remaining six chapters in this last last segment of this episode gives what I'll call... Job's discourse. In chapter 26, Job wonders in whose spirit, Bildad's spoke. You see, he differentiates Bildad's wisdom to God's actual power over his creation. In 27, he has this emotional outburst about God's injustice to him while still praising God's almighty power. In chapter 28, he asks more than once, where can wisdom be found and where does understanding dwell? It is expensive, he knows It cannot be bought even with the finest gold, nor can we weigh its price in silver. No living thing knows nor does man comprehend wisdom's way or dwelling. Job even says God tells man that the fear of the Lord is wisdom and to shun evil is understanding. Hmm. Where else have we had that? Chapter 29 is Job reminiscing over his past glorious days when he was in his prime When God's intimate friendship blessed his house and his children around him, he details the respect and adoration everyone gave him for all his help, for his good words, his deeds, and he thought it would end gloriously. So in chapter 30, he's like, those same people are the same ones mocking him. Younger men that that were, what we can say beneath him, are the ones now they are mocking him. He's filled with attacks, terrors, and sufferings. His dignity is gone. And Job says that God does not answer his cry. We finish here with chapter 31 when Job signs out his defense, because it does feel like he was making a defense, in a closing speech, listing his innocence by not lasting after women, not denying justice to his servants or the poor or the needy, not trusting in gold or wealth, and not rejoicing at his enemy's misfortune. He asks the Almighty to answer him. For his accuser to put his indictment in writing. That is bold of Job asking God Almighty to formally present his charge or accusation against him. He says he would give him an account of his every step. Bold, bold, bold. He feels aggrieved seriously that he desires justice. Where is the justice for this good man? This is where we sign off this episode. And so this has been the second episode of Tracking Wisdom where we met the Lady Justice in Proverbs. we discovered Professor's desire for justice, and we saw Job go through round after round after round of a bubble bout that leaves us asking, where is the justice? I look forward to your company. My name is Wanja or Wanja City, reminding you that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So go forth, shine.